Amen. Grab a seat. So, you know, there's been, uh, there's been certain scientific and engineering discoveries or breakthroughs in our world, in our history, that really have left such a profound impact on the world that we live in that things will never be the same. Would you agree? Okay, certain, certain things, uh, like, like, like things that just have made the world so much better. Like, for instance, a Hot Pocket. I mean, come on, <laughs> right? Like, who had that idea, you know? Like, let's, let's pick a pizza and we'll just, it, yeah, anyways. Um, brilliant, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. Th- there have been certain breakthroughs in engineering and science that have just changed the landscape of the world that we live in. I want to play a little game here. I want to see if you guys can guess, um, according to Discover Magazine, which I don't know what makes them the authority, but they published an article about the top five breakthroughs in engineering that have changed the landscape of the world. I want to see if you guys can guess what some of them are. So go ahead. What do you you think? Yeah. Glass? Wow, no, that's not it. Um, although glass, dude, I, birds might disagree with you. I'm just saying, you know. Um, what's that? You don't get two choices, but that's, that's good, though. That's good. Yeah, the internet, no, that wasn't one. Yeah. Printing press. Yeah, see, she raised her hand. You just cut right in, dude. So she gets, she gets one. That is one of them. Ding, ding, ding. Good job. That's one of five. You in the front. What was it? Yeah, did we invent electricity? <laughs> this, he's an electrician, by the way, so, uh, yeah. We harnessed it, yeah, it's like, like, like a sailboat, harnesses the wind. That actually wasn't on there, and I was thinking that should have been, because you could say the electrical grid or, or whatever. Boats? Boats? Okay, no, boats isn't on there, but hey, you know. What was it? Microchip. Okay, so computer was on there, so I, I could say you could probably say that's, that's one. What else? What was it? Wristwatch. Nope, no, that wasn't, that wasn't on there. Jo- Jordan? Toilets, wow, man. Man, I'm so flushed right now, I just don't even know what to say, man. Um. <laughs> oh, Jeff, yeah, what do you got? Internal, you know, that wasn't on there, but I put that on there, because I think that should be on there. Like, that, that's just like a no-brainer, right? One more, one more. X-ray, that wasn't on there either, but that's a good one. Yeah, these are good, you guys are smart, smart people. Okay, we're gonna cut it off there. So, so they said the wheel... That's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, don't need to reinvent it, you know? Okay, the printing press. Uh, this one probably would have been more popular three years ago, but vaccines, yeah? Um, we used to like those. I don't know, I don't know what happened. Um, something happened. Uh, the computer, and then this was weird. This was the fifth one, elevator. I'm like, really? Like the elevator? Out of everything that, you know, like you guys had way better answers than the elevator. Um, and then TikTok was the, no, I'm just kidding. That's, that's a joke. <laughs> Okay, um, so, so what, would, what would life be like if we no longer had some of these things? You know, you ever think about that? I mean, if we never invented the wheel, if we never invented the engine, if we never harnessed electricity, if we never created a computer, like what would life, it would, it would radically change the way that we live in the world that we live in. I mean, these are things that in, in many cases we don't want to go back to, right? These are things that have not necessarily created life, but they've changed the way we live in profound ways. Now, what would you say, and and this isn't open mic, so don't raise your hand, but what would you say if I said, what do we lose if we take away Jesus? I mean, what, what happens? How profound of an impact, how important is Jesus really to the way that we live and the way that we relate to God and the way that we understand life and, and the universe and everything? If you were to take Jesus away, how much of an impact would that have? What would you lose? Let me put it this way. Can your walk with God stand without Jesus? I would suggest there are many people in uh, in the world, and certainly in the West, that would say, yes, it can stand without Jesus, that, that Jesus is actually a negotiable in the mix of how we think about who we are and our spirituality. Now, why does this matter? It matters because the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Hebrew, ethnically, Hebrew Christians that lived around 60 AD, so somewhere around 30 years after Jesus uh, died and rose and ascended that were considering how important Jesus was as the central figure to their relationship with God. 
See, these people would have been raised in Judaism, which, of course, Judaism at the time, at least, was um, centered around Yahweh, was centered around the Father. But when Jesus came, it sort of unlocked all of these new ideas about who God was, and Judaism sort of stayed where they were. So Christianity broke out from Judaism as a totally different way of thinking, and Judaism sort of stayed. Now, the audience of this book are Jews. They're ethnic Jews. They were raised in the system of religion that we see in the Old Testament. And for one reason or another, this audience was questioning whether they could worship God and not worship Jesus. They were sort of drifting. They were kind of wrestling a little bit with how important is the person of Jesus. Now, how do we deduce this? Well, as you read the book, you realize what the point of the author is And when you realize what the point is, you realize what he's writing to combat. And that is, it's all about Jesus. Okay, Jesus is better. That's really the idea of the book of Hebrews. He's better. In fact, the word better is used like six or seven times in the book. It's only used a couple times in the whole New Testament. The idea is Jesus is better, but not just better in general. He's better than the old system of religion that the Jews had formerly walked in. This is what the author is going to be unpacking for us over the course of the next 13 chapters. Now, this morning, we're going to just bite off the first three or four verses. These first three or four verses are holy ground, okay? This this first section that we just read and that we're going to study and dig into this morning is some of the most incredible Bible that there is, and so this morning, it's important, I think, that we approach it with our shoes off. No, not literally. But we approach it as though this is holy ground. This piece of material that we're going to look at this morning is one of the most high Christologies that we have in the whole Bible. We say, what's high Christology? Christology is the study of Christ. And there are certain passages in the Bible that let us know a lot about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. This is one of those key passages. Hey, write this down really quick. This is a freebie, by the way. There's four places in the New Testament that you should go when you're interacting with who is Jesus. Four places. It's easy to remember. Ready? John 1. Colossians 1. Revelation 1, and you guessed it, Hebrews 1. You guys got that? So let's say your coworker is saying, hey, this whole idea that Jesus is God, I don't see it in the Bible. You say, I got four places for you to look. Colossians 1, Revelation 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. Those are the four primary places where the New Testament authors interact with who the person of Jesus actually is. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those, Hebrews chapter 1. Now, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, which we're going to unpack, is like a zip file. You know what a zip file is? If you get a file that's too big on your desktop and you can't send it, you right-click on it, at least on a, on, a, on a Mac, and you say compress. It compresses it into a zip file. And when you send it, the other person on the other end opens it up. These first three or four verses here are the entire book of Hebrews compressed into four verses. If we get the first four verses right this morning, we're going to understand the entirety of the book of Hebrews. So this is important. Now, I need to uh, mention really quickly that we do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that scholars love to write volumes and volumes on. But one thing we do know is that whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, it was accepted in the first and second century by all Christians as being apostolic, meaning it was considered scripture. But the the, the book is not identified um, or or signed, I should say, uh, by the author. Whoever wrote it was a Greek master, okay? They were a linguistic expert. The way it is written is very beautiful, very profound. It's one of the reasons that a lot of people don't think Paul wrote it. Um, no offense to Paul, but, he, you know, I mean, he, a lot of times, like, he's, he's a little confusing. Like, he's all over the place. So some people think Apollos wrote it. Some people think maybe Timothy or, or somebody like this. It wouldn't have been Timothy, but some, some counterpart of that time possibly wrote it. Uh, One commentator says this about the first four verses we're going to look at. He says, this is the most sonorous. I had to look that word up. Don't know what it means. It means deep, rich, okay, Um, sonorous. Piece of Greek in the whole New Testament. It is a passage that any classical Greek orator would have been proud to write. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews has brought to to it every artifice of word and rhythm that the beautiful and flexible Greek language letter or Greek language could provide. The man who wrote this, his letter must have been trained in Greek oratory. 
So one of the problems about reading an English translation of a Greek writing is that you miss some of the alliterations, you miss some of the rhymes, you miss some of the beauty of the language. So as we study through this book, we're going to be trying to draw your attention to some of those um, in the original language. Now, this first three or four verses is about, it's one sentence in the Greek language. It's one run-on sentence. And as I said, it is a key Christological passage about the person of Christ. So let's dive into it. I'm going to read it one more time, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we're going to break it up. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the exact imprint, pardon me, I was distracted. Where am I? What verse am I, guys? Okay, of his nature and upholds, oh my goodness, I lost it again, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the key word here in this entire book is translated in the ESV, more excellent. You see that in verse four? Okay, it's the same word, better. Jesus is better. That's the big idea. Jesus is better. Now, next week, we're going to talk about how Jesus is better than angels. But like I said here, verse one through three is how Jesus is better than a whole lot of things. Now, I need you to understand something about the old covenant. The old covenant, which is um, how God's faithful showed faithfulness to God in that particular time period, was overseen by three different leaders, Three different key leaders were in charge of sort of orchestrating or administering the rule of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. Okay, you're familiar with them. Prophet, priest, king. Okay, in the Old Testament, these three figures were the primary figures that were responsible for administrating the covenant of God to his people and the Old Covenant. The prophet was how God spoke. The priest was how God interacted. And the king was how God ruled. Okay, now, what the author of Hebrews is going to do here in verse 1 through 3 is he's going to show how Jesus is the better prophet, how Jesus is the better priest, how Jesus is the better king. Why? Because he's prosecuting the idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire old covenant, that if you miss Jesus, you miss the whole thing, is what he's getting at. So if you're an outline person, that's our outline. Jesus is the better prophet, the better king, and the better priest in that order. First, Jesus is the better prophet. Read one again, verse one again. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That word, the, the, the words long ago there just reminds me of like a Star Wars, doesn't it? Like the little, the little thing we all fast forward at the beginning of the screen, you know, da, 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 long ago, at many times. I just couldn't get Star Wars out of my head when I first read that because I'm totally a nerd. But this is where the author of Hebrews chooses to start. He doesn't choose to start at Jesus' life. He starts to, 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 to start before Jesus' life long ago. And he makes the point that God is a God who speaks, God is a God who speaks. He, he does not leave his creation in the dark. He has always sent revelation into his creation. He's never let humanity have to guess for too long who he is and what his intention is and how we can serve him and how we can be faithful to him. He has always given what's called progressive revelation. God has, through the history of time, been giving more and more pieces to the puzzle of who he is and what he's doing in the world. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that God, many times and in many ways, has revealed something about what he's doing and who he is through the Old Testament prophets, primarily. How has God spoken, by the way? in the Old Testament. We have many ways that we see God speaking in the Old Testament. He spoke in the Old Testament through angels, through dreams, through donkeys, right? You know that story? Yeah, no, I wasn't talking about myself. Uh, prophets, parables, wars and pestilence, symbols, types, commandments, burning bushes, precepts, warnings, exhortations, visions, signs, events, face-to-face -face visitations, and even bizarre prophetic shows. 
God has spoke through all of these different avenues at many different times throughout the Old Testament. But that's not the point. The point is in verse two. But in these last days, okay, pause right there. What's last days? Last days does not mean in the future someday when Jesus comes back. Last days is the entire period of time from the time Jesus came until the second time when Jesus comes again. That's called the last days. Anytime you come along last days in the Bible, don't think tribulation and rapture and millennium. No, no. Right now, we are in the last days right now. We've been in the last days since Jesus came. We are between his two advents right now. So in these last days, he, God the Father, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So what is the point here? The point is very simple. Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God's final word. Now, I need you to understand this. Jesus is not replacing the former words of God. He is clarifying and fulfilling the, the entirety of God's word. So this is why we don't just rip the Old Testament out of our Bible like some want us to and just read the New Testament. Because here, what the author is saying is that the Old Testament was, in fact, the revelation of God's word. But now... We have the full revelation of God's word through whom? Through the person of Jesus Christ. What makes the New Testament powerful is that it's about Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to his creation. Let me explain it this way. I remember this uh, Tom and Jerry cartoon one time where, uh, was Tom the cat? Yeah, yeah Tom cat, duh, okay. Uh, Tom... Tom's family or whatever is going away for the weekend, and he's freaking out. What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? Who's going to take care of me? And he's running around the house like crazy. Finally, he opens up the cupboards, and he sighs this big sigh of relief because there's hundreds of cans of tuna in the cupboard. <sighs> he's cared for, right? But then he kind of starts to look around, and he goes, I need a can opener. And guess who's over there with a the can opener? Jerry, right? The mouse. Jerry's got the can opener. And then the whole next 10 minutes is like him chasing around the, 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 the mouse to try to get the can opener. Because the cans are really only as good as they have the can opener to open them. So he finally gets the can opener. And then sure enough, Jerry has locked the cupboards and has the key. So then he chases him around again. Okay. I want you to remember that. This is very profound. Jesus is the can opener, okay? Jesus, it's not that we go, oh, we got Jesus now. Let's just throw out the Old Testament. No, no, no. Jesus is the key that unlocks the Old Testament. So now we read the Old Testament. We read it through the person of Jesus Christ because he has given us the full understanding of what God meant when he said what he said. So we don't throw out God putting Moses in the cleft of the rock. We don't throw out the burning bush. We don't throw out what God said to the prophets. We read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. And what the author here is trying to get his audience to see is that how dare we go back when we've missed the key to everything that God had originally said. Let me give you another analogy. Let's just say that I said, I went to my wife and I said, I think we should take the life savings and I want to go on eBay and I want to buy a supercomputer from the 1960s. And it's going to take up the entire back end of our house. Right? Now, let's spend our whole life savings. And she's going to say, why do you want to do that? Well, I need to calculate our bills. I need to calculate. I need to figure out and get our bills right. Okay, now what's she going to tell me? She's saying, you're an idiot, right? You're, you're an idiot. There's nothing wrong with supercomputers from the 1960s. They were a necessary step towards what? This thing. This is a supercomputer in my pocket. Now, why would I go spend my life savings and take up all the square footage in my house to build a giant supercomputer that can't even calculate a fraction of what this thing can do when I have a superior item in my pocket? Are you with me? So here's what the Hebrews are tempted to do. Jesus has come, the full revelation of God embodied in the Logos, the Word of God, and they're going, yeah, maybe we should go back to the old covenant without Jesus. You see how ridiculous this is? So this is, the, this is what the author is prosecuting here. He's saying, no, you need to see Jesus as the final word of God. I'll say it this way. Jesus is the full and final disclosure of God's personality and God's plan. Write that down. Jesus is the full and final disclosure of God's personality and plan. What does that mean? It means that we do not know the Father if we do not know the Son. And it means that we ought not ever to look at what we've learned about the Father in the Bible if we do not see it through the clarification of the Son. 
Jesus is the full disclosure of God's personality and plan. Now, why, why is Jesus such a superior revelation? Why? Was it because of what he said? Partly. I'll tell you the answer. In fact, why don't you go with me to John chapter 14, verse 7 through 9. John chapter 14. The question is, why is Jesus the ultimate revelation of God? John chapter 14, verse, we'll start in verse 6. This is a helpful passage for us. It's going to say the same thing that our passage is going to say. Start in 8. Now Philip, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, it's no mistake why Philip, who was a Jewish man raised in a Jewish world, wants to understand the Father because that has been the centerpiece of his religion his entire life. Yahweh, right? Now, how is Jesus going to respond? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know who? Me. What do you think Jesus is saying there? He's, you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me, listen, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? What is Jesus saying here? This is profound. Now go back to Hebrews. He's saying the same thing that the author of Hebrews is saying. The reason Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God is because, listen, don't lose me. Jesus is God. You catch that? How how do we know God through Jesus? Because he is God. He is God. This is so important. Same thing in John 1.18. It says, no one has ever seen God. Semicolon. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. No one's ever seen God. Except for God, who's at God's right side, has revealed him to. What does that tell you? It's called Trinitarian theology. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All three are God. We understand the Father through the Son because the Son is the Father. He is one. Now, they're distinct in person, but they're one. In essence, they are the Trinity together. So, verse 3 is going to give us a couple of of images on how to understand how Jesus is actually God. Two in particular. Look at verse 3. Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I want to unpack those two really quick. First is radiance. The word chosen by the author to describe how Jesus reveals God is radiance. The Greek is apaugosma. Apaugosma, that means outshining. Now, this is not to say that Jesus is reflecting the glory of God like the moon. This is to say that Jesus is the glory of God. Why? Because he is God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Like light and like heat are coming from the sun, and you know that that light and you know that that heat is coming from the sun in the same way Jesus is the radiance of God. You remember when Jesus took his disciples up the mountain, the three, Peter, James, John, and he said, I gotta share something with you. And he begins to beam with a heavenly light. And the guys are kind of freaking out, right? What is going on? I thought this guy was, a, I thought he was a man. <laughs> and now he's glowing. Now, what's happening in that moment, it's called the transfiguration. It's not that Jesus is reflecting the Father's glory. Oh, no. Jesus is allowing them to see that he is the Father's glory. He is the Father because he is God. For a moment, Jesus is peeling back the flesh and allowing them to see what is being hidden from their eyes. And that is that Jesus is divine. He is the essence of God's glory. Now, I need to explain something to you guys here that's very important because we're bumping up against this reality of the the dual nature of Christ. Dual nature of Christ. Let me unpack this for you really quick. We need to understand how Jesus is God and man simultaneously. Now, we were not the first ones to think about this, okay? Christians have been thinking about this for a really long time, and they have boiled it down to this. Jesus, it's called the hypostatic union. You're saying, who named that? Well, the Greek word for nature is hypo, 
uh, what is it, hypostasis. So the hypostatic union is the dual nature of Christ. It means that Jesus has two natures. He is fully God and he is fully man. He is not only God or only man. He is 100% God and 100% man. You're saying, Sam, that's bad math. No, that's math outside of our dimension. That makes sense? Okay. Jesus did not forsake his godness to become a man, nor did he forsake his humanness to become God. Neither of those are true. He is fully God, fully man. Let me say it like this. Jesus is not God with skin on. He's not God with skin on, no. Nor is he man with God on. He's not God with skin on. He's not man with God on. He's not a man becoming a God, like the Mormons believe. And he's not God pretending to be man. He's also not God ceasing to be God in order to become a man. All of those things are heresies. He is not a man simply reflecting God. My, uh, uh, Todd Miles, he's a professor up at Western Seminary, he wrote a book um, called Superheroes Can't Save You. And he tried to explain all of these heresies about the, two, the dual nature of Jesus through superheroes. And it was super helpful for me. He, 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 so let me tell you uh, Todd Miles' work. Think about Superman, okay? Jesus is not like Superman. What is Superman? Superman is an alien pretending to be a man, right? So he's got clothes on that make him look like he's normal, but he's really not. He's fully alien. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus isn't just pretending to be a man. He is a man, but he's also God. Jesus isn't like Spider-Man. Spider-Man, see, he was a man who became God-like. That's not what we believe about Jesus. Jesus wasn't a man who became God. He's always been God. He's pre-existent, pre-incarnate. Jesus is not like Thor. You remember Thor? Thor only has power if his father lets him have the power. And the father can take away the power and all you guys that don't watch Marvel are like, what? <laughs> okay, he's not like Thor. He, he's, because the, if he's Thor, then he can lose his power. Jesus can't be un, become un-God. He is God. Jesus is not like Batman. Batman is like a man pretending to be like a God, right? A man that has really cool gadgets and, and a lot of money and Wayne Manor and, and a cool black car, you know? <laughs> Are you following me here? So, so Jesus is, there's no other way to say it. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. What Jesus did in the incarnation was he didn't, he didn't cease to become God. He remained God and added his humanity into his divinity. He now has two natures. And guess what? When he died and went, or when he resurrected, went to heaven, he took his humanity with him. He is both God and man, there's all kinds of reasons why that matters, but I just need you to understand that right now because we're bumping up against this theological reality here in this passage. So Jesus is the radiance of God because he is God. The second thing that we see here is that he's the imprint. Imprint is actually the Greek word character, where we get our English word character. Imprint means Jesus is the character of God, he is literally the exact representation of God because he is God. Now, think about this. Jesus is fully God. He's the exact representation of God, yet God is eternal. God is spirit. So how can we fully see God in Jesus? Well, we can't fully see God in Jesus because we are limited in our dimensionality. Let me explain it like this. If I took a cube and I passed that cube through a two-dimensional universe, what would it look like? A square. And if you were in that two-dimensional universe, you'd just be like, oh, I know what a cube looks like. It looks like this, boop, boop, boop. And you go, no, 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 there's more dimension. You're like, what are you talking about? A cube looks like this, looks like a square. Okay, we see God in the person of Jesus, but in our limited ability, in our limited dimensionality, we only understand so much about God. But listen, Jesus is the best possible way for us to understand God. Why? Because he is a human. And humanity, in a way, is the ultimate language. We understand Jesus. We understand what he said. We understand what he felt. He, translate the, he translates the eternality of God through his humanness. Is this too confusing? Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. Would you tell me if you weren't? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is to humanity as a three-dimensional object is to a two-dimensional universe. That's what I'm getting at. Now, here's the point. Jesus is the ultimate language of God. He is the ultimate lexicon of God. When God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, he was not just sending him to do stuff. He was sending him to reveal the fullness we can possibly understand about who God is. 
Jesus is the key. He's the key to opening all of the tuna fish cans, right? You tracking with me? He's the culmination of all divine revelation. The culmination of all divine revelation. See, every other religion in the world says, God's up there, you're down here, you need to figure out how to get up there. What's the difference between religion and Christianity? In Christianity, God doesn't say, hey, get up here and figure me out. He says, I'm coming down there so you can actually know me. When Jesus came down the mountain, so to speak, in, this, in his incarnation, when he became a human, he became relatable in a way that we never formally could have related to God before. When we pray to God now, we pray through Jesus because he is our intercessor. When we think about God the Father, we think about Jesus because we see his attributes and his personality and his feelings and his emotions in the person of Jesus in a way that we can understand. I just spent two weeks in like four or five different countries. Nobody spoke my language. So frustrating. I just like want to order a coffee and I just feel like an idiot, right? I'm like, coffee, you know, how do you, how do you, it's like, and then all of a sudden somebody speaks your language and you're like, ha, huh, you speak the only language in the world, English. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. Jesus, listen to me. Jesus is the translation of God. He, he, he has revealed God the Father who is shrouded in mystery for so much of the history. He's revealed God in a way that never has been real, revealed before. And now that we've seen him in this light, how could we possibly go back? We've seen him in 4K. Why would we go back to 1080p for you that are into to video, okay? I'm trying to hit all the different illustrations here, okay? So what? No one can truly know God apart from knowing Christ. You know, people will try to tell you that. Let's try to say, you know, I think, I think people are all really searching and seeking God, and every other religion is a different way to know a different part of God, like the elephant, you know? We're all blindfolded, and we're all holding a different part of the elephant, and, and, uh, and I think we all really know God deep down, and we're all just finding him in our own way. No! Jesus is the only way to know God truly. There is no other way to know the Father other than through the revelation of his Son, and we ought never to look at the Father. We ought never to look at God other than through the lens of Jesus Christ. That's why the way we teach the Bible here is we always apply what's called a Christ-centered hermeneutic. What does Jesus tell us about how to read this passage? Because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. So he's the better prophet. Number two, he's the better king. He's the better king. One question that this is answering is why does nothing make sense in this world without Jesus? And we're going to be given four answers here. The reason, number one, that this universe doesn't make sense without Jesus is because he made it. You know, Jesus made the universe. He made the universe. Verse two, look at it. Through whom also he, the father, created the world. Pardon me, the son. The father created the world through the son. Now, those of you that have been reading your Bible for a while, you're like, yeah, I get that. But maybe some of you haven't ever thought about that before. What the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's saying Jesus wasn't just sort of hanging out at the time of creation. He was the agent of creation. God the Father created the Son, or God the Father created the cosmos through the Son. We read about that in Genesis when it says God spoke. John the Apostle in John chapter 1 unpacks that for us. He says, God speaking, that's Jesus, because Jesus is the what? The Word. The Greek word is logos. He's the Word of God. So God spoke creation into existence through Jesus. Why does nothing make sense in the world without Jesus? Not only because he made it, but also because he's sustaining it. Look at verse three. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only is Jesus the agent of creation, he's the superintendent of creation. He is managing it. He's continuing, he's causing everything to continue to move and to work. Colossians 1 says, similarly, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's right. Slam the door on that. Uh, it's like dropping the mic. Uh, this is why we reject the idea of deism. Do you know what that means? Deism means God made the world, and then he went on vacation. That's what our founding fathers, a lot of them, believed. God doesn't really care what we do. He made this world, we're just going to do what we think we should do with it. No, Jesus is integrally working and connected in every part of human life. A third reason it doesn't make, nothing makes sense without Jesus is because he is the appointed heir of all things. Look at verse two. 
Jesus was the one whom he appointed the heir of all things. The heir there is referring to the Davidic messianic title of king over all the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic throne, okay? You could dig more into that later, but that's a huge point here that the author of Hebrews is making. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament kingdom motif and king motif. He is the one meant to inherit the throne of David. You guys remember Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, the movie that never ended, just kept going and forever, and it was like four hours long. Remember that movie? You just keep wanting to leave the theater, and it just keeps going, you know? <laughs> Guess I'll get more popcorn. Okay. Uh, that movie... C.S. Lewis, when he, or C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, when he wrote that, I think he was getting at this idea. There is one king that has, he's the only one that has the right to rule over the world. In the, in the book, in uh, The Return of the King, he, he is the only one that has the power and the authority because he's the right to a sealed door's throne. He's the only one that can gather all of humanity under one banner and march against evil. In the same way, Jesus is the only one that has the true right to the title deed of this cosmos because why? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, because he bought it with his blood. Second of all, because he was given it by the Father. Thirdly, because he inherited it as he became part of the line of David, the root of David. Jesus owns the title deed to this world. Turn with me really quickly to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. I want you to see this. Revelation chapter 5, 1 through 5. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is the scroll, you might say? The scroll is the destiny of the universe. It's what's gonna happen in the universe. And it's sealed seven times with seven seals. Verse two, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who owns the universe, who has the title deed? Who is responsible for the destiny of the universe? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then, verse five, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is the only rightful heir to this world. He has inherited the name that is above all names. It's given to him. He is the son, the only son, the only one that has all authority over all things in the world. Do you see that? What is the author of Hebrews prosecuting here? He's saying, you can't go back from Jesus because Jesus owns it all. It's all his. He is the fulfillment and the culmination of all of history. It's all by him and for him and to him and through him. It's all about Christ. You can't leave him out. He owns the universe. It's his. And if I could say something really quick, in the West, in evangelicalism, we love the idea of Jesus dying for our sins. We hate the idea of an all-sovereign, all-powerful God who's our king who gets to tell us what to do. We hate that idea in the West, don't we? But guess what? You don't get the lamb without the lion. You don't get the suffering servant without the reigning king. Jesus owns everything and every knee will bow. And he bought you with a price, which means he's conscripted you into his kingdom mission. We don't get the last word. He's the final word. He's in control of all things. Lastly, I need you to see this is important. Not only is Jesus the better prophet, not only is Jesus the better king, Jesus is the better priest. Look at verse three. Look at verse three, back in Hebrews. Don't miss this. After making purification for sins, now stop there. What we learn is that Jesus made purification. That is the word katharismos, and it is meant to embody both removal and cleansing. Here's why that's important. Jesus not only paid your sin debt, he 
cleansed the stain left by it. Theologians call it double imputation. He not only gave you, uh, or he not only took your sin, he gave you his righteousness. Are you with me? Double imputation. He gave you two gifts. He gave you the gift of, of paying your sin debt and then giving you a perfect record. So those two things are both encapsulated there in that word, but it gets better. After making purification for sins, don't miss this, don't tune out, come back to me. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You say, why does that matter that Jesus sat down? I'll tell you, go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, just a few pages over. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Why does it matter that Jesus sat down? I'll tell you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest, what's the word? Stands. Every priest stands. There's, there's not a lot of sitting in the work of the temple. Day after day, the temple would be full of priests. And what are they doing? They're standing. Why are they standing? Because there's work to do. Because in the temple, there's constant need for atonement. There's constant need for sacrifice. It was the priest's job to mediate the covenant between man and God. And man has sinned and fallen short of a holy and righteous God. So the priests have sore feet. And they didn't have hocus back then. They didn't have insoles back then. They didn't have foam pads back then. They stood every day, all day in the temple, mediating the covenant of God. Daily, it says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, listen, which can never take away sins. That's the old covenant. That's the priesthood system. Every day, all day, blood shed, never enough to atone. You go to the temple, you got to go back. You go to the temple again, you got to go back again, constantly. This was the old system. But when Christ had offered, listen, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he, what? Sat, sat down. I'm gonna speak that over you right now. Jesus sat down. What does that mean? It's finished. It's done. Stop standing up. Stop standing up. It's done. It's finished, Jesus. He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? It means there's no more atonement to be made. There's no more need for blood to be shed. There's no more need for sacrifices. Once for all, it's been done. He's sitting at the right hand of power, interceding for you. It's finished. It is finished. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is sitting. He's not sitting because he's lazy. He's sitting because it's done. And he's sitting where? At the right hand of the Father because he's, inter he's, he's mediating for us day in and day night. Or day in and night. Isn't that great? It's good news. So what do we do with this? Let me just step back and try to summarize in 10 seconds. <sighs> Why was this being written again? Let me just remind you. Why was the book of Hebrews written? It was written to a group of Hebrew Christians that were drifting toward a Christless religion. They were examining, could we go back to Judaism without Jesus? Can we still worship God without Jesus? How necessary is he? So what can we learn from this? First, we learn that drifting is the greatest inconspicuous enemy of the believer. Did you know that? Drifting. It doesn't say these guys are apostate. It doesn't say that they've gone rogue. It doesn't say that they've denied the faith. It says that they're drifting. It's sort of, a, it seems that they're, they're drifting slowly away. Drifting doesn't look like gross immorality at first or apostasy at first. It looks like becoming accustomed to a Christ-less existence. It looks like preferring a world where Jesus is less on the throne a place where Jesus is less seated at the right hand of the Father, where Jesus is sort of there to be my genie when I need him. He's there to be my piggy bank when I sin. He's there to be my boyfriend when I want to hold hands on the beach. He's there to be my therapist. But does he really need to be the king over everything in my life? Can we just peel that back a little bit? Can we just kind of, this, this whole Jesus is sovereign, can we peel that back? That's, this is the way that we drift, the easiest direction to drift, by the way, is backwards. Did you know that? 
the easiest direction to drift is backwards. And that's what these Hebrew Christians are struggling with. They're starting to drift backwards. They're not drifting sidewards. They're drifting backwards. Backwards into what? Back into an old religious system that has been fulfilled. They're drifting backwards. Now, why would they be tempted to drift backwards? We need to ask these questions as good Bible students. Why would they be tempted to drift backwards? I'll tell you. Because Christianity in the first century was not a cakewalk. These guys have given up so much to follow Jesus. They have been kicked out. By this time, they've been kicked out of the synagogue. They've been kicked out of the temple. Their families would have rejected them. They would have lost or felt like they would have lost all of their rituals and all of their established credibility and their history and their family and their ethnicity and the feasts and the temple and the temple and the synagogues, all these things that they loved in their Jewishness, they felt like they had to leave them behind because Christianity literally got the boot from Judaism within 10 to 20 years. They didn't want them in their synagogues anymore. They were considered a cult. So the temptation for these guys is to say, you know, do we really need Jesus? Because I miss going to the synagogue. I miss Feast of Booths. I miss showing up at Jerusalem for, uh, for Passover. I miss my family. I miss feeling like I have credibility. People think Christians are a joke. I, I'm tired of being persecuted. Maybe I could go back to this old system without Jesus and things will be better. And that's what they're struggling with. And the author of Hebrews is pastorally saying, stop, don't go back. There is no going back. Jesus changed everything. You can't go back because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. He's the centerpiece of everything. All of the Old Testament was an arrow leading you to Christ. If you miss Christ, you miss the whole thing. And guys, do you know the Jews are still waiting? Go to Israel. They're worshiping rocks. The, the, the last remnants of the temple, they, they literally are there day and day and night. They're, they're praying to these walls because these walls, they think those walls are some kind of an intercessor for them. And yet Jesus is standing at the right end of the Father with pity going, I'm here. I'm the way to the Father and you're worshiping a wall. A couple weeks ago, we visited some big Catholic churches. I'll never forget it. We walked through the door and there's a section over here and there's a section over there and there's people on both sides. This section is where you go if you wanna pray through Jesus. This section over here is where you go if you want to pray through Mary. And guess where most of the people were? On the Mary side. Isn't that incredible? We went to another church, a Greek Orthodox church in Toronto. We got to show up for the pageantry of their, their service. And, and what I saw was I saw a wall with a door in the middle. And this little priest with his garb opens the door. He comes out. He does a bunch of stuff. Says a bunch of things I didn't understand. And then he goes back through the door and shuts the door and everybody leaves. You know what they did? They recreated the temple. I don't get to go back there. There's a wall. That, that guy has to be the priest for me. He has to come and do my intercession for me and I just have to sit here and watch and hope that he's doing it right. What did they do? What did they do in Catholicism? They went back. They went back. They missed Christ. They have immediate access now. They know who God is through the Son. They have a priest who is ever-present, ready to connect them to the Father, and there's still a wall in that church. What in the world have we done? See, we go back. Our temptation is to go back. Traditionalism brings a sort, sort of a short-lived sense of nostalgic comfort, doesn't it, sometimes? Sometimes we go back to legalism. Why? Because legalism feels easier. It feels easier to manipulate, doesn't it? Sometimes we like to go back to deism, which is to say, I, I like the idea of God. You know, we have a culture right now, people, that like the idea of God. They like the idea of spirituality. They like the idea of prayer. They even like the idea of Jesus, except the Jesus of Revelation, who has the title deed of the cosmos, and is going to come make war on everything that doesn't surrender to him. I don't like that Jesus. It is so tempting right now to have a spirituality without Christ. And I just, wanna, I just wanna warn you against the drift towards that. It is so easy to go, you know, I like religion. Just this hardcore, hardline, fundamentalist Jesus, fire and brimstone. I don't know about that. Can we get a softer Jesus? Yeah, sure, just throw that thing in the garbage. Just throw the Bible in the garbage and you can have whatever kind of Jesus you want. Jesus is who he is. And what the author of Hebrews is doing for us here is he's saying, you need a higher view of Christ. That's the problem. Your Christ is too small. He's too small to pray to. He's too small to depend on. He's too small to mediate for you. Your Christ is too small. You need the real Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is giving us this morning. The real Jesus. 
the one who is the heir of all things, the one that is the ultimate revelation of God, the one that is the king of the cosmos. He is the Jesus you need to worship now. So I ask you, how big is your Jesus? Is he a Hebrews chapter one, one through three kind of Jesus? Or is he a squishy therapist Jesus that's just there to listen or give you a parking spot every once in a while? but not really big enough to worship. Show me your life, and I'll show you how big your Jesus is. We need a higher Christology. We need a bigger Christ. Hebrews is gonna teach us how to worship the real Jesus. He's too big to ignore, and he's too necessary to live and worship without, amen? Is Jesus the final word in your life, or is he just some words in your life? Is Jesus the absolute sovereign over your life, or is he just... A genie in a bottle. Is Jesus the ultimate priest, seated? Has his work on the cross been the final word in your life? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe you're forgiven? Do you believe he's how you're forgiven? Do you come to him? Or do you put yourself in the temple, standing day after day, trying to do enough to earn God's righteousness? Jesus is sitting. He's sitting because it's finished. Go to him. Amen? Man, I used all the time. really wanted you guys to have some time to discuss. I'm going to put these up on the screen and maybe take a screenshot. I encourage you guys, if you have time, to stick around. I need to cut you loose because of the kids. Um, but uh, those are there if you want to interact with those. And we will do circles next week, I promise. Uh, let's pray. Why don't you guys stand with me? <clears throat> Jesus. You are the final word of God. You are the way that we can know the Father. You own the entirety of the world because you made it, because you sustained it, and because it was given to you by the Father. We refuse the authority and the false ownership of the deceiver, Satan, who is at present the prince of the power of the air, ruling from a false throne, causing people to be captive to sin and death. We say, come now, Jesus. You are the rightful king. You are the king of this world. You are the king of Grant's Pass. You're the king of this church. You're the king of us individually. Everything belongs to you. You bought it. You purchased it with your blood. You could have left us in our sin, ready to be judged. Instead, Jesus, you came down the mountain, once for all, paying our sin debt, giving us a clean Slate, putting your spirit here at work, restoring, rebuilding. Thank you, Lord, for that. Jesus, make yourself bigger in this church. Not that you need to be made bigger, but help us to see how big you truly are. Magnify yourself through this body, through this congregation, through this city. I pray that one thing we would get right, and that is you, Christ. We may not have all the answers, but we have the one that has all the answers, Jesus. You are the word of God. You are high and lifted up. So we surrender ourselves to you today. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.